Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2014 Fall Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Russell Roberts, the John and Jean Denault Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, and it was recorded on October 21st, 2014. I thought I would just, um, a weird thing happens when you write a book. It's, uh, I hate to make this comparison because it's tasteless, but I can't help myself. Um, it, it's something like uh, having a child. Uh, and, and you get a little bit protective of it, and you like to show people pictures of it. And so I thought what I'd do today is just read you the first 250 pages or so, because <laughs> they're really special to me, and that'll save you the trouble. I think we can get out of here by 12, 1 o'clock. And um, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to give you a few of the highlights uh, of the book and a few of the things that I like, um, which again is hard. It's like saying, let me show you my favorite pictures of my kid. So um, I, I'll try to keep an eye on the time here. So uh, some of you may have noticed uh, about a month ago, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, introduced a bunch of new Apple products, the iPhone 6, the iPhone 6 Plus, and the long-awaited Apple Watch. Uh, we thought it was going to be called the iWatch. It turns out it's called the Apple Watch. And when he, when he first uh, mentioned it in his broadcast uh, around the corner from here, the very first thing he said about it in its favor was very strange. He said, it will be synchronized with the universal time standard and accurate to within 50 milliseconds. And I thought, oh, phew. I thought it was going to be 80 milliseconds. I'm so <laughs> relieved. Um, I mean, can you imagine how pitiful it would be if it was only accurate within a second? I mean, that would be appalling. And so it's, it's uh, 20 more... 20 times more accurate than within a second. That's, that's just fabulous. Uh, without one, if you only have the uh, iPhone, which I have, because the watch isn't out yet, uh, if you have the iPhone, it can be off, I've discovered, by as much as 23 seconds. So that explains my problems. Um, <laughs> now, I don't know if you followed this, and I don't know if you know anything about the watch, but the watchiness of it is really the least interesting part of the product, right? It's not interesting at all, really. I'm not sure, other than that you wear it on your wrist where men traditionally have worn watches. Uh, so it was interesting to me that he mentioned this accuracy first and it reminded me of the great technology expert and commentator, Adam Smith. And you might think, well, Adam Smith, don't really think of him as a technology person. He, he wrote The Wealth of Nations, published it in 1776. He was born in 1723, died in 1790. How could he know anything about technology? And his insights in technology, there's some actually in The Wealth of Nations, probably, because everything's in there, but his insights into technology come from his other book, which is what my book's about, which is The Theory of Moral Sentiments. The Theory of Moral Sentiments, uh, he wrote in 1759. He revised it uh, the last time in 1790, the year of his death. It's a very interesting book, very difficult to read, which is why one of the reasons I wrote my book to try to help people get access to it. It's a combination of psychology, philosophy, economics, a little bit of preaching, moralizing, and I think of it as a self-help book for people who don't normally read self-help books. And what I try to do in my book is apply Smith's insights uh, to modern life. He's, Smith, in his book, is trying to understand, helping us understand how other people behave, what makes us tick, what makes us happy, what leads to disappointment, how we treat others. And along the way, he dishes out some terrific observations about our, those interactions and how, how to live. But technology, so what is in 
could possibly be relevant in 1759 that would say something about the, the Apple Watch. And it turns out Smith has something profound to say. Uh, in the, his book, he warns us about gadgets that we don't need but we buy anyway, just because they're beautiful, just because they're designed to their task. So what were the gadgets of 1759? It's a little bit frightening. Uh, I don't recommend you do this, but if you go on the web, you can actually search for ear picker, <laughs> which is a metal device. Uh, you know, we're told don't put anything smaller into your ear than your thumb or something. Oh, they didn't know that in 1759. So Smith talks about toothpicks, which I think were made out of various materials, ear pickers, and one of my favorites, a machine, he calls, he calls them machines, a machine for cutting the nails. And he called these things little conveniences. Now they don't seem to be very related. They're pretty primitive, right? Ear picker, toothpick, nail cutter, right? They don't seem to have much to do with, with, 17, uh, with modern technology. 1759 technology doesn't seem very uh, close to an iPhone or a GPS or, or a watch of the, of the modern era. But Smith was onto something, and it one, of the th one of the things you learn when you read Smith is that human nature hasn't changed very much since 1759. We know that, but it's shocking to see some of his insights into modern phenomena. So here's what he says about the dangers of spending money on gadgets. He says, remember what his gadgets were, but in his day, people could still waste money on them. He says, how many people ruined themselves by laying out money on trinkets of frivolous utility? You know, I have the iPhone 5, and I, I have to confess, I did get the iPhone 6. It's coming soon, and I'm excited about it because the screen's a little bigger. I mean, it's really, it's really pitiful how excited I am for how little it's going to change my life, right? <laughs> that, I can, that I can turn it on with my thumb pad, I find kind of exhilarating. But, you know, I can already do that with my current one by just flicking it. So it's just, it's, Smith understood that we were into these things. He says... How many people ruin themselves by laying out money on trinkets of frivolous utility? What pleases these lovers of toys is not so much the utility as the aptness of the machines which are fitted to promote it. All their pockets are stuffed with little conveniences. And I think of the business traveler's got a Blackberry in one pocket, the iPhone for work in the other, all the stuff, that little camera maybe, all the stuff that men, because we usually don't carry purses, we're trying to carry on our bodies, he says, they contrive new pockets unknown in the clothes of other people in order to carry a greater number. And I was reminded, I once saw an ad for a vest that you would open up and you had a special interior pocket for an iPad. Now, I don't think that sold very well, but Smith clearly saw that this was coming. <laughs> Making this even better, Smith's example of a gadget that people waste money on is a watch. He says, now... As you can imagine, a watch in 1759, not very accurate. But of course, as with all technology, they're constantly trying to improve. People are trying to improve them. So Smith's example, he says, he talks about a watch that loses two minutes a day. Now, some of you probably remember watches that at night you would wind them and put them back into accurate form. You might have loved them because they were a gift from someone. But watches, now we don't even think about a watch being inaccurate. Most of us don't carry watches. We use our phones. But Smith talked about a watch that was off by two minutes a day, and he says a person will pay 25 times more. He'll sell that watch, buy a new one that's 25 times more expensive for a watch that only loses a minute every two weeks. So you go from being off two minutes a day to one minute every two weeks. Huge improvement in accuracy. But Smith notes that people uh, don't respond to that improvement very much. He says, 
The sole use of watches is to tell us what o'clock it is and to hinder us from breaking any engagement or suffering any other inconveniency by our ignorance in that particular point. But the person so nice with regard to this machine, who's got this more accurate watch, will not always be found either more scrupulously punctual than other men or more anxiously concerned upon any other account to know precisely what time of day it is. So it doesn't, you know, the fact that the watch is more accurate doesn't make the person more accurate, which is so true. What interests him is not so much the attainment of this piece of knowledge as the perfection of the, of the machine which serves to attain it. And he goes on to say that because we like stuff like this, right, because we're tempted by toys and gadgets and things and the material that surrounds us, we're tempted to try to gain wealth and in doing so degrade ourselves and do things that are either corrupt or demand more of our time that is worth it in order that we can achieve a certain level of material standing. And he says money and fame, power, the things that people are drawn to, they're not what make us happy. And my favorite sentence in the book, in Smith's book, is the following. It's his, he doesn't treat it this way, but he uses it a number of times in the book and it really sums up I think his insight, his deepest insight into human nature, he says man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. Man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. Naturally desires, meaning it's deep inside us. This is not a cultural thing. It's, we're hardwired to look for the affections from other people. And by love, he did not just mean romantic love. He meant respected, honored, admired, paid attention to. And by lovely, he didn't mean physically attractive. He meant worthy of honor, worthy of respect, worthy of admiration. And he says what we want from life and what gives us deep satisfaction is to be respected and honored by people around us and to earn that respect honestly. And then a lot of the book, which I think is deep, a lot of the book is about how tempting it is to be loved through money, fame, and power, and he wants us to take a different path. But he talks about the great appeal of being famous or rich or powerful, and he says, and this is why it's so appealing, he claims, it's part of our human nature, scarce a word, scarce a gesture can fall from him. He's talking about a great person, a famous person. Scarce a word, scarce a gesture can fall from him that is altogether neglected. And the expression would be, we hang on on every word of a famous person. In a great assembly, he is the person upon whom all direct their eyes. It is upon him that their passions seem all to wait with expectation in order to receive that movement and direction which he shall impress upon them. And if his behavior is not altogether absurd, and of course, sometimes famous people are altogether absurd, but if he's not like totally crazy, he has every moment an opportunity of interesting mankind and of rendering himself the object of the observation and fellow feeling of everybody about him. And I use in my book an example. I said, imagine, I use it in the classroom, imagine this room. Imagine if while I begin my talk, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt, because they have a deep interest in Adam Smith, wander in, <laughs> wander in and, 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 and stand over there. And of course, every single person over there would start and it's like at a baseball game when a fight breaks out in the stands, right? After a while, people aren't watching the game anymore. And it just sort of spreads through the whole state. It's a good fight, you know. Um, I have so many fun 
baseball fight stories, but I, I, I shouldn't tell them. I have too much Adam Smith to get to. So they're over there, and they're just taking notes and maybe talking. Soon, every person in this room, I think, would not be looking at me, but would be looking at them, including me, by the way. What are they thinking? What are they doing? What are they wearing? I don't know if you've ever been in the presence of an... Ex and by the way, I have, to be honest, I have limited respect for their talents. They're very good at what they do, but I don't think they're as important as lots of other people in our world, doctors, teachers, etc. Uh, my brother. I mean, there are a lot of wonderful people in the world who I respect more than them in the abstract, reasonably, but if they were here, I, couldn't, I wouldn't be able to take my eyes off them. And if they were in a restaurant that I was in, I would constantly, and I've seen people do this and talk about it, people would constantly be looking over, what are they doing, what are they saying, and just want to look at them. And what a strange thing that is. And Smith um, understood this. He tell, I, I tell the story in the book, it's an incredible story, because we think of celebrity as a very 21st century thing, 20th, 21st century, late 20th century. It's reality TV, it's all a, a modern, recent phenomenon. But to, here's an incredible example from uh, the middle of the 20th century. Ted Williams, the baseball player, drove a Cadillac that was a beautiful car, huge, uh, identifiable Cadillac, and he, all the police knew him. And one time, his friend, he had a buddy who was a nice, normal person to keep him sort of sane. His friend, who he used to hang out with, said, Ted, I've got a date tonight. Can I borrow your car? And Ted Williams said, sure, and he gave him the keys, and the buddy took the car, and he went to a restaurant. As he pulls into the restaurant, a cop comes up to him and says, who are you? Why are you driving Ted Williams' car? So that's how identifiable the car was. So the kid, young man, makes, explains it, and finally the cop's convinced he's not a thief. Ted Williams really is his friend, and it's okay that he's got the car. The guy's about to go into the restaurant with his girlfriend, and the cop says, is, would it be okay if... I just sat in the car for a minute. <laughs> oh, sure, go ahead. So the guy goes, into, guy goes into the restaurant with his date. He comes out an hour, hour and a half later. There's six cops sitting in Ted Williams' car. <laughs> he had called his buddies. The thrill of it. Think about that. What is the thrill of sitting in Ted Williams' car? It's bizarre. Really strange. But it's real. To be somehow connected to that incredible thing and what, what Smith observes, and his, of course, the celebrities in his day, he turned out to be one. It wasn't one in 1759 when he first wrote the book, but the celebrities of his day, there were some intellectuals, not very many. Most of the celebrities of his day were people of the court, people who were fawners, people he hated because they did not produce anything real. They weren't truly great, but they were considered great because they're, of their power, their closest to power. And he says, when those people die... It's so depressing to the average person, and that makes no sense. You think about it, think about the outpouring of grief when Princess Di was, was killed, or Elvis Presley, or Whitney Houston. These are tragedies, it's sad, but the amount of emotion that we have, he says, he says Smith tries to understand why is it that we care so much about people we don't know. We don't know them, and we cry for them the way we wouldn't cry for sometimes a relative. He says, we look at these people, we say, what pity we think that anything could, should spoil and corrupt so agreeable a situation. We could even wish them immortal. And it seems hard to us that death should at last put an end to such perfect enjoyment. It is cruel, we think, in nature to compel them from their exalted stations to that humble but hospitable home which, he has which she has provided 
for all her children. We just can't imagine that really wonderful people, great people, not wonderful necessarily, but famous people uh, can die, that their lives end, that the fairy tale is over, that the ending isn't a happy ending. And he talks about how we kowtow and submit to power, that we look at tyrants even sometimes, and we say, you know, they're tyrants, yes, but if given an opportunity to, to change things, we're very hesitant to do so because of their apparent greatness. So this is a truth that's profound and, and timeless, of course. We're riveted by celebrity. And Smith urges us not to take that path for ourselves, not to seek fame, not to seek riches, not to seek power. He says there's another way to be lovely, and deep down, we do want to be lovely. We want to earn the respect and honor and admiration of those around us, not through deception, not through taking credit for stuff we don't do, but to be wise and virtuous. And Smith says, this is just beautiful, he says, he says, two different models, two different pictures are held out to us, according to which we may fashion our own character and behavior. The one more gaudy and glittering in its coloring, that's fame and power and riches. The other more correct and more exquisitely beautiful in its outline. The one forcing itself upon the notice of every wandering eye. The other attracting the attention of scarce anybody but the most studious and careful observer. So Smith is telling us, take the road less traveled. Take the road of wisdom and virtue. You'll be respected, you'll be noticed, but only by the most studious and careful observer. The cheering will be quieter and the crowd will be smaller. But that's Smith's advice. And then Smith spends a lot of time talking about how to be lovely, how to be virtuous. He talks about propriety. He talks about the three big virtues for him. He has many, but the big ones are prudence, and justice and beneficence. And I sum those up by saying prudence is take care of yourself, treat yourself well, don't, don't abuse addiction, don't overdo the things, the temptations of life, keep your health, don't spend your money recklessly, that's prudence. Justice, don't hurt other people. Beneficence, help them if you can, right? Don't just pretend to help them, but if you can actually help other people, that's, that's a, a very high virtue. Uh, finally, Smith impresses on us the virtue of knowing and loveliness of knowing yourself. To be able to step outside yourself and see yourself as you truly are. And Smith concedes that this is extremely difficult. Strangely enough, we are better at noticing the flaws of others than our own flaws. And uh, he says, it's so disagreeable to think ill of ourselves that we often purposely turn away our view from those circumstances which might render that judgment unfavorable. So I'm, even if I'm not lovely, I like to think I'm lovely. And to know that about yourself, to be aware that you are biased, obviously, about your own success, your own goodness, is a wonderful way to think about the fact that you probably could be a little bit better husband, a little bit better uh, father, a little bit better friend, a little bit better colleague, and so on. And Smith urges us and gives us some ways to step outside ourselves and view ourselves objectively. But his reminder, I think one of the most powerful points, is that that's really no fun. Because we don't want to see ourselves as we truly are. And he says, this is maybe my second favorite quote in the book, he is a bold surgeon, they say, whose hand does not tremble when he performs an operation upon his own person, right? I'm really good at criticizing other people and finding their flaws. My own flaws, not so good at. 
And he is often equally bold who does not hesitate to pull off the mysterious veil of self-delusion, which covers from his view the deformities of his own conduct. I don't want to look at myself in that mirror. It's too painful. And so I create an image about myself that's not maybe so realistic. And Smith's telling us that if we really want to improve ourselves, we need to take that veil. And that veil doesn't just mask our behavior from others, which of course we do that all the time. We do something slightly inappropriate or very inappropriate. We don't want to be caught, but we particularly don't want to see it ourselves. So I'm going to mention, it really bothers me, there's an error on page six in my book. It says that Smith's father died a few months after Smith was born. He actually died a few months before he was born. And I hate that. I hate that that's in the book. It'll be fixed in subsequent printings, but it really, really bothers me. And when I think about it, my first thought is, maybe no one will find it. <laughs> and if they do find it, are they going to really broadcast it? Is it going to really get a lot of attention? And then my second thought is, well, it's really not so important. He didn't know his father a few months before, a few months after, but it bothered when I step back. It's not good. It's not, I don't know how I made that mistake, uh, but I did. So that's the kind of thing. I picked a really trivial example of my imperfection, of course. Because <laughs> I'm human. Um, but that's the kind of thing where it's very difficult. It's so easy to fool yourself that what you did, first of all, isn't wrong. First of all, no one will find it. Second, if they do find it, it's not important, et cetera, et cetera. Last thing I want to mention, next to last thing, sorry, is... Smith has some extraordinary insights into how we deal with success and tragedy and what a modern economist would call the asymmetry, the fact that it's not the same for these two kinds of extremes. So Smith says, if I have a great tragedy in my life, I'm going to get a lot of empathy from the people around me, right? Because they can imagine it. They can put themselves in my shoes. Not exactly. Not perfectly, but they can try. And he talks a lot, very beautifully, about how we try to harmonize our emotions with people around us. He actually says it's better, in many ways, to tell a stranger about a tragedy, because the stranger can't really empathize with your situation as well as a close friend. And as a result, when you tell them you're going to have to soften your emotional response, it's actually going to make you feel better. It's a very, very interesting insight into our behavior. So he says... But a stranger can empathize with a great tragedy. He says, a great success, not so much, right? People aren't as happy for us with a great success as they are sad for us with a great tragedy. And then he says, uh, Smith has a nice sense of humor. He says, the man who by some sudden revolution of fortune is lifted up all at once into a condition of life greatly above what he had formerly lived in, may be assured that the congratulations of his best friends are not all of them perfectly sincere. <laughs> He's on to something there. Uh, I, I, quote, I quote Gore Vidal, who said it a little more bluntly, every time a friend succeeds, I die a little. <laughs> Which I think, uh, I think is true. And then, then he says, so, so, so you, you got this thing, so a great success... My friends are kind of not so interested in, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've probably had that happen. You made a mistake. You told somebody you probably shouldn't have told about something good that happened to you, and they all go, um, yeah, it's nice, man. And they're gone. A great tragedy. They will listen to you. They will empathize. They will maybe bring you dinner. 
they'll let you cry on their shoulder. They're not going to dance with you when you have that great success unless they're your spouse, probably. Um, so that, that, that's a difference between tragedy and, and, and success. But at the same time, small successes and small tragedies are the opposite. He says, a small success you can tell your friends about. They'll go, oh, that's nice. That's great. He says, a small tragedy, well, not a tragedy, but what he calls a small vexation. Nobody has any sympathy for you whatsoever. In fact, they're most, most likely they're going to enjoy that it happened to you. <laughs> they're, they're not going to enjoy that, you're, you know, that, that a relative died or that something really ha horrible happened to one of your kids. But something little, a minor inconvenience, they're going to get a kick out of it. And Smith actually says... Well, let me, let me read you the quote first because it's so beautiful. He says, so he's talking about, he doesn't call it this, but he's talking about a whiner, okay? The man who is made uneasy by every little disagreeable incident, who is hurt if either the cook or the butler have failed in the least article of their duty, who feels every defect in the highest ceremonial of politeness, whether it be shown to himself or to any other person, who takes it amiss, that his intimate friend did not bid him good morrow when they met in the forenoon, and that his brother hummed a tune all the time when he was telling a story, who was put out of humor by the badness of the weather when in the country, by the badness of the roads when upon a journey, and by the want of company and dullness of all public diversions when in town, such a person, I say, though he should have some reason, will seldom meet with much sympathy. And Smith's advice, he says, when these things happen to you, you get stranded at the airport, you're, sometimes you're boiling with frustration. Strangely enough, other people don't find it frustrating. So Smith's advice is, get some humor out of it. Tell, it, tell a joke. In fact, he says, he says, if you're jilted by your mistress, make a joke out of it. Don't look for sympathy. And I'm thinking, boy, times really have changed. <laughs> I can't remember the last time a colleague told me about being jilted by mistress. A very, uh, it's a strange uh, water cooler conversation. Um, so what I want to close with is, is to ask the question, what does this have to do with economics? And there is some straight economics in, in the theory of moral sentiments. And in particular, I want to mention uh, Smith's rant against the man of system. He's talking, when he talks about the man of system, he's talking about a leader who has a vision for humanity, a scheme to remake society according to some master plan or vision. And Smith warns us that people fall in love with their own schemes, which we, of course, know only too well. And they can't imagine anything going wrong with it. And they're blind to people who are hurt by it or by its implementation. And in his zeal, the visionary, the man of system, forgets that they're natural forces which might work against... Uh, against the plan. And it's a, this is probably the most famous quote, to the extent there is a famous quote in the theory of moral sentiments. Uh, Smith says the following about the man of system. He seems to imagine that he can arrange the different members of a great society with as much ease as the hand arranges the different pieces upon a chessboard. He does not consider that the pieces upon the chessboard have no other principle of motion besides that which the hand impresses upon them, but that in the great chessboard of human society, every single piece has a principle of motion of its own, altogether different from that which the legislature might choose to impress upon it. If those two principles coincide and act in the same direction, 
the game of human society will go on easily and harmoniously and is very likely to be happy and successful. If they are opposite or different, the game will go on miserably and the society must be at all times in the highest degree of disorder. So that's a very deep insight, I think, into the law of unintended consequences, the dangers of top-down solutions. The other part of economics that's in the book that which I, I just think is just so profound and so important, is Smith has a wonderful discussion of where civilization comes from, where it is that we, how it is possible that we can trust one another. How is it possible that people don't act opportunistically? And basically he argues there's a marketplace of morality where through the approval that I give to other people when they act well and the disapproval when they act dishonorably, I can, all of us can, through those interactions, create a world that's pleasant to live in day to day without having to monitor everything through the police, through the government, et cetera. It's really a beautiful example of how norms emerge from our repeated interactions with each other. That's a very beautiful and it's an important part of the book. But most of the book's just about how to live. And I would argue that some people think economics is about GDP and interest rates, the money supply, the stock market, and economics does have something to say about all of those things. But what economics is really about, and what Smith thought it was about, is how to get the most out of life. The scarcest, least renewable resource on this planet is our time. It's very finite, and understanding how to use our time well and to live thoughtfully is the beginning of a path to getting the most out of life. And Adam Smith, in his less famous book, has much wisdom to offer. Thank you very much. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on either iTunes U or SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.